Hello everyone, welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Thackeray. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in the bar and restaurant industry. My pursuit in this podcast is to have difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole. All right, so I'm going to talk to you today about uh, legacy. And legacy is something that is uh, very important to some and not important to others. A legacy is something that you leave behind. It's sort of like your reputation, like the your name. It used to be that uh, not that long ago, a few uh, decades ago, you would grow up with this mindset in, in certain families that you needed to do the family name right. And, um, and that was your legacy, right? Because when you talked about you're, whenever you, you presented yourself and you said your last name, well, in the town that you're in, in the area that you lived in, that name, that last name meant something. What it meant, good or bad, well, that depended on what legacy the, that person before you left. And what is interesting about that is when you talk, think about it in, in the bigger terms, right? We think about it in the historical sense. We, we look at, at history, you know, I was, I was in the 90s, it's, there was this movement to start to correct history because at the time, or I should say up, to, up until that point, everything that was taught in schools was one-sided, it was the Europeans created the world that we live in now by themselves with no real help. In other words, the, the, the Western world was built and created in every every aspect in, in the hard work in the creativity in the innovation um, in the funding all of it was uh, European so the white world ruled because they were better at everything than anyone else but as other points of view started to to be written about and expressed in in, in large in the media that started to change because we started to realize that you know inventions like the cotton gin you know was former slave that that invented that made uh, the work of producing cotton a lot easier um you know nowadays we know that the recipe for jack daniels that everyone loves so much it was a black man that that came up with that we also should know also that the the uh the native Indians that were here, Native Americans that were here before the Europeans ever came, had sophisticated societies um, that ranged everything from punitive um, to those that were very uh, open and and, uh, and and loving, and um, it seemed like everything was treated as therapy. Right? Um, there were some tribes that had women were the elders and the ones that made decisions, especially the decisions to go to war. Because the idea was that a mother would have a much harder time sending their sons to war than the fathers. And so there's all this history that was um, suppressed for a very long time. And, and right now, there's actually the, the Trump administration just last month uh, signed an executive order to suppress uh, what is 
uh, known as um, God. I forgot. Even today, we are dealing with the suppression of, of different ideas with the uh, current administration. The Trump administration just signed an executive order just last month um, that uh, suppress uh, critical race theory, which is this idea of basically what I just described to you, that there is this entire history that is being suppressed by the powers that be. And so if you, so, so institutions are, are important. Policies are extremely important. Um, it's great to have the oral history that what's allows um, a people's history to, to survive through severe times of oppression and censorship. But there's also um, the need that in order to be respected in a society, you have to be able to have your history um, be part of the thread that is taught in schools. So it's very I easy to disrespect someone whose history you you have omitted, whose accomplishments um, are are negated because you're not part of this. And that is something that I grew up around, that idea. And, and it just, it really baffled me. Eventually, in the 90s, these ideas started to, to permeate past the, uh, the, the undertow of uh, academia and into the mainstream. And um, you have, you know, groups like Public Enemy and Spike Lee and, um, and, and, and that type of media to, to thank for that because that's where you started to hear these things. But there's a place in New York that I've been to that I found super insightful. And that was, it's called the um, El, El, El Museo del Barrio, the, the Museum of the Barrio. And in that, it's a museum about, uh, it started off as just Puerto Rican history in New York. And, but it has expanded uh, to, um, to include all other uh, Latin American uh, cultures that are there in, in New York. What I found interesting was that in addition to celebrating people of color, of, of Latino culture, who have, you know, had become senators and judges um, and uh, chief of police and, and, and all those positions that were key in New York, um, it also gave time and space um, to activists in the community, you know, people that did things that was seem as extreme at the time, like, you know, climbing a the, the, the bridge, I can't remember if it was Brooklyn Bridge or the Washington, and uh, putting a banner up, you know, in protest to, I can't tell you right now, <laughs> but, um, but it was but it was nice to see these accomplishments that are mainstream, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, if you go to school and you do this and you do that and you do that, then you can achieve these things. And then there was the other ones that is, is the people that at a time when, when it's inappropriate to, to, um, to call out inequities, um, took that risk of doing it. Because you have to remember that for minorities asking for equal equality 
means being difficult, right? Why are you being so difficult? I'm sure a lot of you have heard, especially if you're around my age, you know, if you grew up in the eighties and nineties, then that's something that you hear a lot. And, and women, um, have that stigma, but people of color in general, um, do that, have that, have that stigma. And, uh, and the thing is, is that it creates an anomo- uh, animosity between classes and, and people. And so there's a good reason why sometimes people react quickly, um, to, to, so the point is, is that if we remain underfunded and underserved, then the powers that be are going to continue to create the policies that are from non-diverse leaders. And that's a big problem. When the leaders can't relate to the people that they're leading, essentially at this point, it feels more like ruling. Then you're going to end up with things as, uh, as we are experiencing right now. Uh, Congress is, is in Senate leaders, Republican leaders are all millionaires. So they're not hurting by COVID. Uh, they're still getting paid. They still have their salaries. Um, they still have their medical. Um, they still have chauffeurs. They have security. Um, they have their meals. All of that paid by taxpayers. But the taxpayers that are suffering from COVID-19 uh, shutdowns and, and limited uh, business hours and uh, even, you know, health problems. Um, I mean, I mean, actually getting COVID and losing a job or having to care for, for a loved one or losing a family member, even worse, right? Or losing their own lives. People are dealing with that. It doesn't really matter how you feel about it and how much you want to protest the mask or or the reality of COVID. It is a scientific fact. The entire world did not get together to hoax you. That is an immense sense of importance that you have given yourself. No one gave you that. You gave it to yourself. Okay? So... Again, point being that institutions have to be created and they have to be funded by the government. Okay. And and why? Because it's sort of like crowdfunding for people's healthcare. At some point, like, yeah, you can give for one, for two, for three, for five, for 10 people, but eventually you're the one that needs, right? Because you're paying taxes and you're paying for someone else's healthcare. You're doing both. Your taxes is supposed to pay for someone else's health care and for your own, more importantly. So these institutions that, that preserve accurate history told by the people's own voice, right? Is something that is under attack right now and that we need it. So if you're ever in New York, Make sure that you go to El Museo del Barrio because it is a place unlike anything else. It, it's, it's context of what the, the contribution that Puerto Ricans and other Latinos have made in New York is, is evident right there. It's right there in front of you. The problem comes here. 
this in, in, in the problem is whenever the opposition sabotages everything you do sort of like whenever uh, Obama was able to pass health care for everyone states like Texas at the time Rick Perry was the governor refused the funding the federal funding right to lower the cost of health care so when you went to get Obamacare or you know the uh, CARES Act uh, insurance uh, at the time it was extremely expensive right it was way more expensive than it should have been because the governor was sabotaging it and that is something that we're seeing right now left and right and it's something that you have to be aware in order to hold these leaders accountable another part and this is a discussion for someone else with more knowledge but the fact that someone like Mitch McConnell <clears throat> from a small county in, in Kentucky that uh, doesn't have the same type of, of issues that the majority of the country does and the majority of the country exists in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Houston, Chicago. That's where the majority of the country is. If you add up uh, population. And here he is making decisions still being elected because he's coming from some small area podunk area of, of the country but he is appointed leader of the senate a senator from houston wouldn't be able to do what he does because people will vote him out you understand what i'm saying it's just too much diversity within a city for a city senator to do what Mitch McConnell and Lizzie Graham does and still continue to be elected to six-year terms. So, what I have to say is pay attention to these things uh, as far as the politics, but also how the funding for your libraries uh, is, uh, is, is done because that's another uh, place where you can get virtually any of the information that you want if you want to self-educate. But museums that are culturally uh, relevant, not just relevant, but, but focused, um, is extremely important. So that said, I would like to introduce you to Dr. Marta Moreno Vega. My mom was like the warrior woman. She would go and fight for the family, fight for my father, because no, that can't happen. You know, that's not allowed. My godmother, uh, his daughter, was getting a special test to go on to Hunter. Hunter is a school for intelligent young people, right? And she told my mom, she says, you know, my daughter's getting this test. Is your daughter getting the test? And my mom was like, uh-uh. You know, let me go to school and find out why she's not getting this test. So my mother goes. I was her translator. She says, tell the principal that I want to know why you're not getting the test. And he says, tell your mom that the kids in this school, right, the school I'm in, are not bright enough. So they're not getting the test because they'll all fail. So my mom looks at him and she says, look, you son of a bitch. My daughter is intelligent and I insist that you give her this test. I insist that you give the whole school the test. 
And I was like, Ma, you speak English? I didn't know that my mom spoke English. That was the first time I understood that everything that we were saying in the house, my mom understood. The mandate my parents gave me was demand your place in the world. And everything I've done has been to assure my place in the world, demand my place in the world, because I know that in doing that, my children will have it better. In doing El Museo del Barrio, we were looking at the Native American experience, the Spanish experience, as well as the African experience. And we did an exhibition focused on Loisa, which is a black area of Puerto Rico. And it was very interesting because when our community came through to see the exhibition, they were like, Eso no es Puerto Rico, that's not Puerto Rico, that's Africa, that's someplace else, but that's not Puerto Rico. There are more blacks, right, in Latin America, the Caribbean, and Central America than there are in the United States. We tend to think that it's all one mass and everybody's doing or achieving in the same manner, and that's not the case. We know that the Native American populations are not faring well. We know that the immigrant populations are not faring well. So that we need to be very cognizant of all of that diversity that makes and comprises the Latino experience. All right, so I did this interview with the uh, Ian and Nate from uh, Rabbit's Got the Gun. From, uh, that is a uh, Latino-owned bar here in Houston, Texas. And we did the meeting responsibly, which means we did it over Zoom. Now, because of my technical limitations, um, my audio did not get uh, recorded. So, all you're going to hear is these guys tell their stories, which is the right thing to listen to anyways. But I'll chime in to the conversation and uh, kind of give you my perspective on what we were talking about at the time because uh, it was a, a very good industry conversation these guys at least ian has a lot of experience as a uh, in the bar business and nate has a lot of experience as a craftsman and we talk about that in a, a little bit in the very beginning where we we essentially compare the two and, and they're both very similar in that just like the bartender the 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 masonry um, has to do the job in order to learn how to do it correctly so you can read books about bartending techniques history recipes all you want but until you do it and you're under that pressure of what the job is and the the, the multifaceted aspect of it then you don't really know it's the same thing with the men's masonry you can read about it in the history and you know how certain projects came about and all those good things but until you start doing it, you really aren't going to gain the skills necessary to be good at it. And they're both craftsmanships. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to Ian and Nate. So originally we had uh, planned on doing the bar, the concept for organic. And we had got there like right before COVID hit. And the uh, reason being is I had a friend that had got cancer and uh, he was teaching me about uh, like the power of like vegetables and what they do for your body. And then um, I started researching that 
alcohol promotes cancer cell growth. And um, so I was like, man, I not counter what alcohol does, but try to like somewhat make it healthy. But as we all know, like organic costs a lot more, you know? So we're not for organic anymore. We were before COVID. Um, to be honest, man, it was, it was, it was more about, um, it was, opening the bar was more about legacy, if that makes sense. Um, and, uh, so I've, I've, I'd always heard of like, uh, you know, like old cowboy days of like brothers being cowboys together and stuff like that. And, uh, so my brother was in a situation that he, he was tired of. So he got out of that situation and um, we wanted to come together and, and, and create something that was gonna change where we were. At first we were just looking for a spot. And then we, we my brother was like, let's just go to Northside because he had already looked at our building two years prior. I think it had been vacant since the last time we looked at it. And uh, our father has a brickyard down the street that I helped him build. And uh, we're like four generation masonry contractors. So from that neighborhood. So it was just super important, man, to come together and uh, create something that like, like what I love about masonry work um, is that you can literally, I can drive you around the city and show you buildings that I helped stack the ladrillos and make the mezcla for my old man all around the city and they last forever because it's, it's brick, you know? Masonry lasts forever. And so it was like, it was, it was, it was very, it was like a very passionate thing because we were putting things in there that meant so much to us that the normal person going into our bars says, oh, that's pretty brick. Oh, that's this. Oh, that's cute. But they didn't know, you know, I grew up chiseling those bricks. Ian grew up stacking those bricks. And, you know, um, even the bricks in our wall, they're, they're like 80 to 100 years old, salvage bricks. And a lot of history, man. And it was, it was about, it was also about giving our bartenders a space to create and be artists. And it's it's kind of kind of funny how um, how you start a bar and then it's like your little baby, and um, and everything in there to the last detail is so important to you, right? And then it blows up into this thing that's like way bigger than you, and your and your bartenders start owning it and 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 making it their home, and it's uh, I feel I feel really accomplished because. Everybody that works there is so happy to work there. And I know that they'll never forget that. And then what we've done will already live forever, you know? It's like uh, laying brick and bartending is, is a lot of life in its ways because you just got to do it to learn it. I feel like, not to sound too ho hokey or whatever, but I feel like whenever you're creating something or building something, I feel like you imbue a space with your energy um and so um when we were building out the space it was a collaborative process and we wanted to definitely extend that passive it was like we had a lot of goals that kind of been shifted a little bit with uh corona covid and all that but 
there's some there's it, it works like there's a duality with the duality of in it or of it um there's a part where we walk in there and we feel very proud and we have a lot of memories of every single little aspect of it you know whether it was us shopping together looking at paint samples or us fighting over the finish of the brick and how it's scraped and stuff lots of fights lots lots of fights <laughs> um but so there's that part of it that that physical aspect of it that you walk in and you see it and you remember and you see the imperfections but there's also that part of it where i where it's like kind of esoteric where i feel like like i said you know you, you put your energy into it and i feel like when people come in um whether it's customers or employees um they can feel that and they feed off of that so um and that's what we want to do like you just explained with drinks i feel like that that's also that's also very much a thing when you have a bartender doing production and they're cooking a syrup you know this um you're very talented at doing that yeah yeah of course absolutely um but you know sometimes you go in like you said you have a drink you're like oh this is great and you're like it's, i'm making it up say oh it's a cinnamon syrup but you don't really tell them all of the ingredients the whole process they don't know that it takes five or six hours to make that syrup you know and that's and but we love that you know we love that and and i feel like that's 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 what we tried to do to create a space for that and we have a lot of a lot a lot of big plans um whether they come to fruition in this space at rabbit's got the gun or maybe the next uh venue that we uh build out but we want we believe in the collaborative process it's very 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 important you're always going to hear us say when you come into the bar family that's like that if it came down to one word that's the mantra family always um both because we're always there with our brothers as well uh two of our brothers always work with us in the bar in one capacity or another um but uh that collaborative process is an extension of family it may not be the whole blood thing but it's working with other people whether it's artists that come in and do installations Nate handles all of that the artists that come in and bring canvases in uh they do installations they do murals uh the bar is covered in that stuff um it's constantly shifting. People come in they're like, "What happened to this piece?" Well, that's new. But that's the thing. You want it to, you want to have that that not transient, but you want to have that evolution evolution constantly happening inside of it. Both with the cocktail menu, the art, everything. So, I also see a lot of um I also see a lot of bars have like uh like you know, like the drink curators and cocktail curators that put the menu out, but I feel like that's so I feel like that's so lame. Um one of the things that we've been doing is um having like a round table trying out each other's cocktails and then and then kind of choosing, you know, hey man, that that's definitely going to sell or man, this tastes great. Let's put it on the menu. So I think I think working together we've we've actually learned to to work together better and trust each other more. And um and now we're stepping forward to trust our bartenders to do their jobs and make drinks because they get excited, you know. It's funny that you say that cuz I was going to mention two things. Um uh one I'll I'll mention the first one cuz you were you just said it right now. Um this is years ago I was uh working for a friend of mine here in Houston managing his uh his restaurant and bar and we took staff some of the staff over to uh, Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. <laughs> And um, I had, you know how you talk about books, you know, books can help, but they don't, you know, they, they're, they're tools. And so um, you can't pick up a hammer and you're a carpenter because you have a hammer in your hand, you know? 
Um, and so uh, I went out and um, we had hit a, a point in the bar where volume was very, very high. And we were having trouble maintaining the quality of the drinks and deciding whether we were going to compromise or not. And one of the ways that we were talking about doing that um, was whether or not we would turn to uh, more uh, efficient uh, draft cocktails. Um, now that now that's that's not common, but it's not unusual. I, I had I told you the other day I had the best lines uh, till entry bar that was on draft. It was phenomenal. Um, but back then, you know, I don't know, seven eight years ago, um, at least in Houston, um, it wasn't super readily available. Yeah, it wasn't. So back then, it was at the monthly on only, and you'd walk up the stairs. Um, the carousel bar was on the right and to the left there's this little room and they'd always set up the bookstore there you know we'd been a few years but I walked by and I looked because I hadn't looked at the schedule of book signers and Dave Wondridge was there and I was like oh fuck man I was like wow this is the dude this is the guru dude the writing guru man really nice too I was completely blown away I, I, I don't I mean I didn't have an expectation but you know big authors everybody knows they're the, the, the daddy of stuff and uh I introduced myself and I was like, I, I, I just got a question, Dave. I just I got to ask you a question, man. My service well on the back patio is churning out six to seven thousand, one human, one person, six to seven thousand dollars of cocktails in a Saturday or a Friday night. Yeah, I only know one person that was, that was capable of doing that. It's my old business partner. He was bartending back then at the time, Brad Stringer. And, um, and he's an animal, man. He's a beast. He's very, very good at what he does. Oh my God. He, there are very few people that can handle that volume and still put out that quality. Anyways. Um, and I was like, man, we, what are we going to do? How do we fix this? How do we make this more efficient? And I asked Dave, I go, I said, Hey, I said, how do you feel about draft cocktails? So how do you feel about them now? And he goes, tell me about your bar. And I said, well, there's this service well and blah 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 and this and that he goes can people see what's going on there and i was like uh no i said kind of been kind of not it's in the corner kind of tucked away and all the waitresses go and pick up their drinks there and he's like oh okay he goes all right he goes so if they're not seeing it he goes and i said you know if we put it on draft it would we would burn through it so it would not sit there even it wouldn't you know maybe half a keg would sit there overnight for 12 hours and then we pour it out the next day i go how do you feel about it you know what he said to me he goes he goes, here's my take on it, Ian. He goes, I don't have a problem with it, but this is how I feel about cocktails. He goes, where or what do you consume or what do you buy on a regular basis that you can actually go and watch somebody make it in front of you? He goes, think about it. He goes, what is it that you, as a consumer, what do you what do you get that you watch it being made? He goes, for me, he goes, it's nothing else than a cocktail. That's the only thing that I can go in and I can watch and appreciate somebody, you know, like you said, crafting it or whatever. So that's that 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 thing where you're you know do we do it like you said is it is there you know the controversy you know is it kosher like you said or is it not is it socially acceptable so um that's a big theme in our bar is challenging the norms um and do we really need to do what everybody else is doing if they already did it you know they already did it why would you do the same thing and that was one well that was there was i think a peak we had seven bartenders and that was just one it was a service well and it was like how did yeah so again you're like is it okay i mean you know it's like and if you're, yeah now everybody has vodka in their wells and they're not ashamed of it now it's okay
Yeah. It's, it's a, the whole entire process. I, and that's why, you know, there's, there's that whole thing about like, Oh, this guy's got a bow tie and that nape. And it's like, well, no, it's like the person takes pride in what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's wow. like, you should take pride in that. The way that you take care of yourself is the way that you, is the same thing that you're going to put, put into the drinks and your service, your hospitality. Right. So here we get into a subject that at one time was taboo. Uh, doing uh, draft cocktails was something that most cocktail bars didn't want to do because um, they were selling the idea of you having your, your, your product made for you right then and there. They were selling the idea that you were paying extra for, for extra work, right? And it made perfect sense at the beginning of this, of this, um, of this rise of the cocktail, right? Cocktail bars and cocktails and all that. And so about five years ago, believe it or not, that was still, that was just the thing that people wanted, but they didn't necessarily understand it. You know, having a cocktail, cocktail menu on virtually any restaurant and any bar. And so anything that cut the steps a little bit too much, it seemed like cheating and draft cocktails was one of those things. Now, as you heard, uh, Ian is talking about an extraordinary situation because when you're talking about doing six grand in one well, one bartender, that's insane. That's to, to give you an idea for a bartender on one well to do two to three thousand dollars on a regular Friday or Saturday night, they're doing pretty badass, right? Because usually those places that you have that are that busy, and we're talking about just regular bar, not necessarily cocktails. Um, but a bar that's doing some cocktails, because you can easily do that, just pouring shots and selling beers and doing duos, you know, your um, whiskey and soda and, and whiskey and Coke and all that. You can easily do two grand. But I'm talking about doing, actually doing some, some cocktails um, correctly. And so, all right, so two to three grand, it's pretty badass because in a lot of those places, you might have, you know, three or four wells. So it's a good night. And, um, and so whenever you're talking about doing cocktails and doing six grand, that's like club type volume where you are pouring shots and doing beers and doing duels. And that's it. I mean, you can do 10 drinks in like 30 seconds because it doesn't, it, you know, in one minute, you know, it doesn't take that much time to set these things up. You put the glass up, throw the ice, pour, you know, free pour and uh, and follow it up with the uh, soda gun to uh, do your vodka sodas or your, you know, whiskey and Coke and, you know, or shots and shit like that. So that's a, that's, that's a huge volume whenever you actually have to put three, four ingredients into one cocktail, shake, strain, or double strain, you know, stir a cocktail with, again, minimum of three to five uh, different ingredients. Depending on there, and, and I imagine they didn't have anything that was too crazy, you know, like a tiki cocktail that might have six or eight ingredients, but still, that, that's that's quite, that's a lot, all right? And so, in that instance, I would just put the most popular uh, cocktails on draft and just be done with it, right? Because you're able to maintain the both things. You're able to maintain the volume and you're able to maintain the show. And the show is watching the bartender put these cocktails together right there in front of you. So um, I think that whenever he was talking to Dave Wondrich at the time, it was it was uh, that that was 
what was being sold, you know. It was this idea that the cocktail was made in front of you and you were witnessing it and you were enjoying it. It was part of your experience. And um, and if you don't know, Dave Wondrich is the uh, author of Imbibe, um, uh, the book, not the magazine. And then he also did one called Punch, which gets into the, uh, I think, even deeper history of uh, cocktails before that met him talked to him he's a really nice guy he's always uh, very open and willing to give you information so i'm sure that was a, a great experience and i think in context it makes perfect sense that he would be you know telling them that because like i said back then we were still selling the selling the dream that that that's actually that's actually my brother's thing so my brother's a huge fan of Christina Tosi's milk bar. So he, and who doesn't like ice cream, man? I and mean, we're in Texas. Who doesn't like frozen drinks and ice cream? It's hot as fucking why, you know, you're dying and everybody wants to sit on the patio. And so he was like, man, I, I would really like to open something like an ice cream shop. And we talked about it, you know, and uh, we, we, we bought 99% of our equipment from, uh, from auction. And actually a lot, even furnishing, sometimes you'll see things, you won't know little things that we get in auction. He likes to go to, he has a friend that's out of town that she has this huge antique auction. It's, it's really wild. You can get anything from glassware to furniture to art and everything. Anyways, off subject. Uh, we're looking at the auctions late at night. One night, um, we started at the beginning of build out um, and I'm going through and you find random shit on auction. There's things you never even knew existed, you know, like, like things on stuffing sausages, shit like that, you know, weird stuff. Um, and so uh, we're going through and I see an ice cream machine. I was like, oh, this is an ice cream machine. He goes, buy it. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, it's, it's what you bid on it. You know, you're bidding 150 bucks. So I think we got the machine for like $300 and we picked it up and we, you know, put it in storage again and we're building everything out and laying it all out. It's like a $3,000 um, machine. Actually, it's more than that. I looked it up. It's more, I think it's more like, it's old. So you, now you would pay 3000 but when it was new, I think you paid like, upwards of half you know like like five six i think um anyways uh good yeah we well it that was the whole point it's again it's remember how we're talking about the norms and what other people would do we knew that as far as we know there was nobody in houston doing that like why why would you know and you, come on man everybody you everybody uses cream and dairy in their drinks you know uh uh brandy alexander's grasshoppers mudslides you know whatever we're talking on and on white I, russians I, I do see a lot of concepts doing that shit now <laughs> I do see a lot of, even the bow tie dudes are doing that. <laughs> uh, another thing off subject that i wanted to bring up too is like shit we did our bar with no investors so we don't know anybody but each other and that's another special thing about our bars we don't have some dude fucking show, pulling up, treating us like shit because he's a money guy or, or, or just for profit. And, uh, and so it, I'm, the reason I'm saying this is because I'm not sure if, if we're the first, but I'm thinking we're the first Hispanic brothers to open a bar in Houston together. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that old, so I wouldn't know, but cocktail bar. 
And so um, even even uh, even our brothers over at Monkey's Tail, uh, and 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 it's 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 a cool vibe where we're at because it's Latinos, right? And you're starting to see a lot of of, of Latino flavor in the cocktails, right? Because I feel like nobody wanted that in cocktails five years ago. Not true. All right, so let's get into a little bit of that Houston cocktail history. It wasn't so much that people didn't want the Latino flavor. It was that the people in charge of the menus didn't know the flavors or didn't think that people wanted it because they wasn't important enough to them or they didn't identify authentically enough with those flavors in order to to advocate for it. And so oftentimes that's the issue the thing is is not that people aren't creative enough the the staff the bartenders the the problem is is that the people in charge of making the final decision overanalyze it and they think that people don't want something that is good sometimes that is excellent other times a few times is whenever it's outstanding but they're like yeah people aren't going to like that because they're not going to get it and, and they don't give the consumer the opportunity to decide for themselves. Sometimes it, it goes exactly that, but it's not that it's a flavor that people don't like. It's just something that people aren't ready for yet. And that's a big difference. So we're also um, working on opening another spot uh, around the corner from our spot. Um, and it's going to be... Um, more than likely, it'll be Umbrella Fellas or Brick and Mortar, our buddy Cheeto with the Burton Dogs, and um, some beer and wine, and uh, a dive bar attached to it. So that's something that we're working on right now. Me, myself, I'll be possibly opening up uh, a bar in Galveston as well. So uh, we, uh, we're working on some things. But, um, you know, a lot of people will come and they'll say, don't throw offers at us, you know? They'll be like, hey man, uh, I've got a million dollars. Let's do this, do that. And sometimes I feel like, you know, uh, not even to sound cocky, but sometimes I feel like, man, you know, do I really want to give these guys my flavor? You know, do I want to give them the sauce that we've created together? And, um, is it all is it all about money at the end of the day? You know? This this is what I this is what I think about that process and how important it is when he says that we're self-funded. What that means is we didn't open up overnight a, a you know a, a, a you know 2.5 million dollar, you know, five story blah blah blah. Um you know, you start small and you grow it. But because of that, it also changes the way that it evolves and what it becomes. It's organic and it's growing is what I'm saying. So um, you're going to go in and see things. So what happened? So here's a big difference between what Ian and Nate are doing is that they're funding themselves. Now, that is... Great idea in the sense that they have full 
creative um, um, control over everything that happens in the bar. And, you know, sometimes having an investor is a good idea because you distribute the, the, um, the, the risk amongst more people, so it's less risk for each one. But it's also can be a terrible idea because sometimes those people having some risk feel like they have a, an equal say. And their knowledge of the industry or of the craft can be zero. And it can be very dangerous at that point. Then there's the other part where every once in a while, somebody might get really lucky and find an investor that understands the, the time that it requires, that is required to grow something creative and the space that those, those minds and those people need in order to make something work. That's extremely rare. I'm going to tell you that. Um, the best way to do it is to self-fund it the way that Ian and, and Nate are doing. Because at that point, you're able to make decisions that no one understands except you. And because of that, you're able to make them come to fruition in a very unique way. They're your ideas, right? Obviously, other people aren't necessarily going to understand them. Until you make them reality then it becomes an aha moment or like, oh, wow. You know, so whenever people, you, anytime you've walked somewhere, you're like, you know, that's amazing. I've never would have thought of that. Well, because of that, maybe had that person tried to articulate it to you before you ever saw it, you would say it was crazy or it didn't make any sense or, you know, you're wasting time and money. But you as the creative mind, you envision it. You have this vision. You understand what it, it's supposed to do and what you can do. So I kudos to, to them for being able to do their project this way. And so definitely if you're in Houston, you need to support them. But, uh, but then through after all of that, they had uh, the curveball that's got everybody working hard right now. And that's COVID. The inside got built out immediately. And then we uh, we were going to build a small bar in the, in, in, the, in the back room. And because of COVID and people wanting to sit outside, we focused our energy on the back patio, right? Mm -hmm. But again, because of us self-funding it, it means that we do it steps at a time instead of having the whole thing done immediately. We didn't hire an interior designer to come in and we did it all and opened up and we're like, Dun, dun. you know it's more like okay what's the next thing that we're going to focus our energy and our finances on you know what we'll budget out we'll look at what we're going to do in phases and because of that it forces us to slow down and think about what we're doing and it also allows us to collaborate with other people like you said slowly bringing those people in we have an artist that we've been working with uh um that lives on the north side um his his name's actually I call him Helsink. His name's actually Gelson. I call him Helsink like a vampire slayer. I just think of him like that. Like he's a little bit uh, mythical when he works. And you can come into the bar and see the back patio. And the uh, in he actually did a full installation. It's a lot more than a mural. It's actually uh, a, a, um, it's a it's a, an experience when you go back there. It's a different vibe. But again, because we didn't have million dollar, you know, investors and all of that, you know, and because we spaced it out and because, you know, we take it in phases, it allows us to have people come in. We 
can talk to them and we can feel them out and you know not just people like you said that are throwing money at you but people that really give a fuck about what they're doing like they really care you know um and that they really believe in what we're doing and that uh that our brands are on the same level and that's why nathan is talking about um uh the potential of collaborating with cheeto from umbrella fellas um we've been working with him since we opened up man he used to do pop-ups he helped consult on our food truck lobos tacos and uh and now nathan just it just wants to help uh him bring his stuff to the table and the beautiful the beautiful thing about uh about our brother Helsing and, and Cheeto is they're from the hood, man. They're from where we're from. We're riding bikes down the same streets, getting beat up in the same streets, you know? <laughs> different back then, you know? Okay, so at this point, we get to geek out a little bit as um, as bartenders and, and bar owners and whatnot. And that is because I think that they're user space behind the bar is one of the most intelligent that I've seen in a in a really long time and probably ever given the context of what the bar is within what could be 15 foot long bar um, back bar uh, or back area I should say because there's also a door but um, they have an espresso machine they have the soft serve and they have the um, uh, frozen machine and so earlier when they were talking about, you know, everybody loves ice cream, that's the soft serve that they have that they also use to make Brandy Alexander's and, um, and whatever else uh, other cocktails needs a uh, cream. So the way that they have it set up, they have those equipment, they have the back bar of all the liquor and modifiers that they need. In addition to that, they have a vertical uh, freezer that gives them essentially the the space that a kitchen would have is is it's a it's the beautiful blend of of kitchen and bar that personally i love because and i say given the context right because given the context of the space and the type of bar all right and that's the other thing about it whenever you're talking about like bringing in a designer as, as uh ian mentioned a designer for a dive bar is not necessary it's actually the more personal you make it the better off you're going to be designer is for something that you're going to do that is more high high end you know upscale that's where a designer would come in unless you know a bunch of artists and you're able to pull it off yourself but a lot less likely um and and knowing these things makes a big difference on how you 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 get started in a venture that takes a ton of work to get it going and then the work starts and it's infinite reason we put things where we put them to is um for the system so what i've learned like really recently um is that you create your system within your bar and then it just flows you know and so that's another cool thing about designing your own space um because i felt like i wanted to give the bartenders everything that they needed to work all of it well not really i kind of let ian design the the whole bar man i told him i said i'll design everything that's not in the back of the bar but i told him i said 
make your dream fucking bar layout with the wells. I said, if you had, because I'm like a big believer in like doing it once, you know? And uh, it's funny because we're actually about to change, we're about to reorganize that a third well, but we didn't contemplate that in the beginning. But um, I told Ian, I said, dude, build the best fucking back bar you can build for comfort for, for y'all. Because I've seen him at other places that he worked at, and it's like crotch to ass when you're passing somebody, barely have space. I said, man, you know, do your thing. And but also, uh, also as a him saying that to me, the 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 difference between us doing it and other people doing it is, my brother's a contractor. He's been doing this for decades. You know, literally. Well, okay over a decade call it over a decade um we're working so closely again because we're brothers and we can say whatever we need to say to each other and not get our feelings hurt um we we were able to work very closely together and fix those things you know a lot of the time you if you're open already and you're looking back you know and you're like oh shit we should have done this um then you don't have uh, the luxury of shutting your business down to redo everything um, also sometimes budget is an issue, you know? And so we, we were more, uh, we, because my brother's a contractor, we were able to, um, you know, uh, it, we were able to control things. Um, and so, uh, that enabled us there. There were a lot of spaces. What I'm saying is there are a lot of places I've been into, um, in the 27 years I've worked in the business where you walk and you're like, Oh man, this is, this is fucked. This is, you know, who designed this, you know, like why, why would they have put this pole right in the middle here? You know? Um, and so, uh, because, because of our ta- because of our individual talents and skills and everything, we were able to, I feel like we we're able to, you know, people come into the bar and like, this is awesome. Bartenders come in they're like, Holy shit, this is great. This is, I love the amount of space. I love the way you laid it out. There's a little bit more to it. Also like having the espresso machine and the way that the bars lit, we're, we were looking at growth from the beginning. We planned on opening up uh, daytime and uh, for lunch and for dinner. That's also part of the reason why things are laid out and we have espresso and we have ice cream and everything. So we saved about a hundred dollars a week on that. My brother's like, uh, we're gonna have espresso because you spend fifteen to twenty dollars a day on coffee. <laughs> and I was like, all right, cool. I'll take an espresso machine. <laughs> Seriously, there's no doubt we're spending three hundred a week on coffee. Yeah. Okay. Well, also, also because. There was nothing in the neighborhood. They, new, new things, now Canary just opened up. Canary opened up. It's not, it's not right by us. It's actually a couple of blocks from Monkey's Tail. Um, and so technically we're like in the same neighborhood kind of, but we're not. They're on 610. We're on 910. It's a little bit of a drive. It's, it's not the same. Do you remember Rico's? It, it, it's now a bar called Main Street Tap and Grill, but it used to be a Mexican restaurant called Rico's uh, Rico's Mexican Triangle Triangle Rico's Triangle Mexican Restaurant right yeah. and uh, this was when coffee good coffee was 50 cents right so <laughs> it was horrible coffee but it, it I remember okay so it was a diner style diner style restaurant Mexican restaurant and they had this big long bar like fucking 30 foot long right and Right there was like a hub of contractors, and every day after work, I'd go in there with my old man, and whoever cashed a check that day at the corner store would buy a whole buy the whole fucking restaurant coffees, right? Because they were like fifty cents. 
Awesome. Instead of drinking, all the all the old schools would just be in there drinking their coffee, you know. Our dad was one of those. He yeah. sat there. Yeah, I would go in there two or three times a day sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure, man. You're from Puerto Rico, right? So I went to, uh, man, I went to Culebra. I went out to Culebra and uh, and I I was waking up at like five a.m. You know, riding my golf cart. <laughs> Yeah, but coffee's so big, bro. I was eating breakfast with like all the workers, you know, and uh, and, and everybody, believe it or not, have a hot dog and a cup of coffee. And we'd be getting ready to go to work, and I I enjoyed just soaking up that culture. Y'all got real good coffee out there. Seven oh eight Hogan. We're on the corner of Main Street and Hogan, just north of uh, University of Houston downtown, right in between the tire shop and the fire station. Yeah, for sure, man. We'd love to have you in there, man. And, uh, we're about to do Milagro on Hogan. So we're, we're doing a Christmas event. So we're about to do that. Uh, kind of like a, a twist on Miracle, but, you know, a north side twist on it. Yeah, we're, we really wanted to just do like a like a Mexican, you know, theme. You know, Christmas is such a big thing for us. And, you know, you know our, our culture and everything. And it's not just, you know, it's it's more than just one night. And so we're like... Man, let's let's uh, decorate and let's do this uh, all the way through December. It'll be from December the first straight through till December the thirty. Yeah, seven days a week, we're open to close. As long as the bar is open, we have tacos, tacos, burgers, tortas, quesadillas, everything on the truck. So, full menu, full food menu. Yeah. All right, guys. So there you have it. That's Ian and Nate from Rabbit's Got the Gun, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to their story because it's very authentic. And one of the things about these two guys is that they're enjoying the process of putting together this business venture, this space that is a shareable space, right? Because that's the thing about opening a bar or restaurant. Unlike opening a washeteria or, you know, car wash or any of these other businesses, a bar and a restaurant is very personal, regardless of how you approach it. You know, there's always some touch that you or your wife or husband or loved one, you know, puts to it. And when people disrespect that, not knowing who put it there or why, you take it personal. That's the thing about it. And so when you take the time to lay every brick and, um, you know, and par wash the floors and, you know, have uh, pick out the artists to do the murals and, you know, all these little things, it, it is extremely personal. And so it seems to me that they're enjoying the process. And I think that's a beautiful thing in, in all, of, uh, all of what we do. Too often, in my experience, I've worked in this industry for over two decades. And I've worked for a lot of different um, entities. You know, everything from some corporate spots to places that are mom and pop and tiny mom and pop too towards like there's one or two waiters um so the thing about it is is that people can lose their way very easily between being their own boss and having to serve the community that they create and at this point they seem to have the right balance between the two it's it's shaping out to be a, a great place. I look forward to witnessing the uh, the growth of it 
and the development so far all the bartenders that i've seen there have been people that i respect that i think are, are talented um in both in in their skill set for as a creative and as a um uh, from the point of view of execution so technically you know they, their techniques are good so you can find them on social media at uh, rabbits got the gun and i know they're on instagram and on facebook and uh, they have their own website so go check it out so for 2020 we've had a lot to deal with so i'm going to leave you with a little bit of wisdom when i was growing up a brother who was always with my brother became addicted he was in the street, raggedy one day and so on, and I walked by thinking I was, you know, beyond cute, beyond fabulous, right? And he says, you know, hey sis, and I ignored him. And he went and told my mother, and she says, Jimmy talked to you and you didn't respond? Why didn't you respond? You know, teenager thinking I was all that, you know, so I was like, oh, because he's all dirty and so on and so on. That was the first time my mother smacked me in the face and my mother said, that could be you, that could be your brother, that could be your sister, that could be me. Don't you ever, don't you ever not recognize yourself in somebody else. That's being spiritual. My mama taught me. If you have a smart device, you can listen on Alexa. Um, you can ask for the Open Bar experience. Also, we have our own website, which is openbar.space. You can check us out also on your favorite app, whether it's iHeartRadio, TuneIn, uh, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. Check it out, the Open Bar experience. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and keep the conversation going.